You know, there is a center to the universe, and that center might just be me. Have you ever lived that way? Have you ever lived as if you were the axis point for which the world spins? That there's a story going on, and really all of the story points back to you and how it might benefit you or revolve around you? I've thought this for a time. Can you give you examples? I'm going to give you some examples of why I think this for my life. Well, one of them, uh, my confirmation bias comes up in the year 2000, uh, which was the year that I graduated from high school. And I thought this was going to be the end of the, year, end of the ages. You know, maybe Jesus would return in the year 2000. It was Y2K, if you remember that. And right when I was graduating, the pop song by a one-hit wonder named Vitamin C, all about graduation. Why? Because the world revolves around me. Or I considered graduating from seminary. And I grew up uh, with starting churches with my father. He started one in El Paso, started one in Orlando. I remember, you know, building that church in Orlando with him as, as far as serving God together. And I get called to start a church. That's incredible. Or how about this? I was at college, and I was late for a class called physics. And it's not because I need to learn about physics. It's because God was revolving everything around me so that the last seat available was right across from that young gal. The world revolves around me. More examples. I mean, I've traveled to Israel. I met Tim Tebow. I won on the prices right. I mean, what more do you need? But maybe this is the clincher. You guys have lived in Chicago for, what, more than 10 years? Raise your hand if you've been here more than 10 years. Okay, I'm the newbie, and it took a hundred years for this to happen. But when I get here, the Chicago Cubs, famed for being the lovable losers, are now winners. And I just wanted to say, you're welcome, because the world revolves around me. I grew up with an Andre Dawson poster in my bedroom, and so you're welcome, because it's all about me. You ever have a toddler live that way? And what happens when a toddler realizes it's not all about them and they can't get what they want and they can't do what they want or go where they want? And what are your stories? I'm just curious when you had those moments. Maybe you were fishing and you finally got the big one. Maybe you, you finally bought the, the car or the house or, or that clothing item of your dreams and, and you, you just think, you know what, this is all about me. It was on sale for me. And if we're honest, this is the natural way we tend to live. Even if we don't have confirmation bias and stories that back it up, it's the way that we want to pursue, that everything is all about me. The story's being told, I am the protagonist, I am the main person. I think we live like this cat. And I had to laugh because this is what our cat looks like at home. And if you have a cat, you know they live that way, that it's all about them. Which is why it's so good we're here, right? <laughs> you ever meet with a doctor and, and they just need to tell you what's wrong? <laughs> we have come to a place where really the doctor of souls, Jesus Christ, is going to come into your life. And, and he's going to point some things out and just tell you, you're wrong. <laughs> and, and over that whole idea that the world is all about me and it's all revolving around me, the word of God jumps in and says, well, no. Now, God loves us so good that sometimes it feels that way. It feels like we're his favorite because his grace is so great. Um, but it's not about us. 
In fact, one of the great purpose passages of the Bible tells us that if you live that way, you're kind of living the opposite of what God intends. Consider this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He died, the one who is the center of the universe, for you, out of love for you. Why? So that those who live would no longer live for themselves as if it was all about them, but for him who died for them and was raised again. His goal for us is that we would no longer live in radical abandon for everything that we want as if we were the main point of everything. And so spiritually speaking, and I know this is a front to culture, our first takeaway is this, that the center of the universe, unfortunately, it cannot be you, and unfortunately, it is not me. And then I consider the one person who understood this completely. And that one person, Jesus says, was the greatest person who ever lived. Now that's my spiritual quiz. If you've been in Christ, who is the greatest person besides Jesus who ever lived? It is John the Baptist. Jesus said about him that there is no one greater born of a woman, which is everyone, by the way. And, and, and you think of what John the Baptist knew about his life and how he became great. John the Baptist lived knowing that there was someone greater. That he was just the spiritual warm-up act for the headliner named Jesus. And so he would say things like, I must decrease so that he must increase. I must become less so that he becomes more. And this, too, is how we live correctly. And I guess that's what I love about this series called When Pigs Fly. And we're in the second week, and we've taken a look at Jesus driving out demons. We'll take a look at changing water into wine and, and resurrection power. And, and yeah, many people say, you know what, I'll believe that when pigs fly. But for us, it is of such great comfort. In week number one, if you were here, um, we talked about that if we have a supernatural God, we have supernatural comfort because he's able to help us in any situation. And today, what is so good about the miracles of God is that we see we are here and he is there. <laughs> I might be favored by God and blessed by God and even loved like Jesus, but I am not Jesus. He is so far above. And so we're going to get into our lesson. Uh, but before we do, I want to set kind of the, the story around the story. Today, the writer of God's word is a man named John. And if you look at his gospel compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, he likes to hone in on specific sections of Jesus' life. For example, he has a, a lot of chapters just dedicated to, towards Holy Week. We're going to be in chapter 9, but really it's in between chapter 8 and 10. It's a continuous dialogue, and the dialogue is all about who is Jesus. Now in chapter 8, Jesus was in the synagogue, and he said some weighty words. He said that he was greater than Abraham, which was a big thing for those Jewish Pharisees. He even said that Abraham would have looked forward to his day. But then he makes the most audacious claim. Jesus, in the midst of the synagogue, says this, Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. And he's not just talking about his everlasting presence. Some of you know that this I am is significant. Some of you know that when Moses asked God, what should we call you? He basically said, call me I am. 
So when Jesus declares, I am, he is not mincing words and he's making no mistake about it. He's not a teacher or a good man. He's claiming to be God and nothing else. And the Pharisees, you're the center of the universe? What? They had a hard time with that. In fact, much of them were fueled by jealousy. They couldn't deal with a bigger person than themselves. And so Jesus does what he does next to prove his point. Coming hot off the heels of this discussion then is John chapter 9. You ready to get into it? All right. Um, something we like to do just to honor the fact that God is speaking to our lives is just stand to hear the word of God. I invite you to please stand as we hear these words. It says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put the, on the man's eyes. Now, th this might strike you as a little bit gross that there's mud going on. But I, I guess I wanted to pause, and I praise a God who lets us experience him. And we might not have mud today, but we have the sacraments. And what are the sacraments? They allow us to feel, taste, and touch the presence of God in the water of baptism, in his body and blood. So he comes to this man in a very personal way, doesn't he? More than even just speaking words. He said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And this mean, word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begged, begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is the man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. It says, powerful word of God. Can you just say out loud or to someone next to you, I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. Please be seated. Great words from the song, Amazing Grace. I don't know about you, but I think in this world, people have a hard time admitting they're wrong. Now, if you're married, don't look at your spouse. Don't poke them. Don't, don't look at your friends, right? But would you agree that in this world, people have a really tough time admitting they're wrong? Yeah? For example, it, it's going to be a presidential campaigning year, and I'm not here to take sides, but here's what I predict. I predict that neither side will use these words, we were wrong, <laughs> right? Or, or my wife and I, we went to a marriage retreat, and a whole big portion of that retreat was conflict resolution. And you want to know a secret to conflict resolution? Just say these words, I was wrong, <laughs> But this is so hard to do. 
In fact, I was reading an article on, on why they think it's so hard to do, and, um, and they were describing that one of the reasons is that it gives the other person control, and no one likes that. So if you admit that you're wrong, that other person can either forgive you, which feels great, but they can hold it over you and so control you, and who wants that? Another thing that they said is that it lowers our self-esteem and leads to cognitive dissonance, which was a big word, but let me explain. Um, it's the idea that if I believe I'm a kind person or a good person, and I admit I did something unkind or not good, I, not everything is right in the world, so it would be easier to avoid that cognitive dissonance, you know, uh, hypocrisy, and, and rather not admit that I did anything unwrong or kind. So this is the world we live in. And the reason I bring it up is because when the Pharisees come to Jesus, they will never be convinced that they are wrong. In fact, you look at their dialogue, and, and, and Jesus is wrong, but they're not. Right? In fact, when it comes to the Son of God and what he's just done, this is what they proclaim, because they cannot be wrong. This man is not from God. I know he claimed to be God, but he's wrong, and we're right, and we're about to prove it. <laughs> but they couldn't. But it makes the disciples in this section so winsome. And our example for the day. The disciples had the humility to say, God, you can teach me. There's something we might be getting wrong. And we see that in the first verse. As they come to the man born blind, they say, Rabbi, which means teacher, you can teach us. Can you let us know what's going on? Like, who sinned? Is it this man or his parents that they were born blind? And of the two options that they give, in their limited understanding, which one was the right answer? Neither. <laughs> Neither was the right answer. And so how wonderful that they're willing to be corrected, because if they would have just interpreted them themselves, of the options that they had, neither of them were the right one. But this question is still something that we assume spiritually today. And it's a very deadly assumption spiritually. The, the assumption going on is this, that when someone suffers, my suffering is a direct corollary to my sin. You ever been there? Now, now let's be clear. Sometimes I suffer directly because of my sin. I gossip about my friend. My friend is not my friend. That was my fault. Um, I steal, commit a felony, I go to jail, that, that was my fault. I suffer because of my sin. But, but sometimes there is tragic circumstances. Sometimes there are things that happen to us that have nothing to do with our sin. But I can tell you, even I struggle with this one. There are those miserable, horrible, no good days where at times I feel like, you know what? Yeah, I did something. I'm not sure what but my confirmation bias on this leads me to believe, oh, I did this and this and this. I'm not a perfect person, so God, he's just out to get me. You ever a day like that? Or something blows up in your face, a relationship, a project, whatever. And then you have confirmation bias on this, and you're like, yeah, and that's because I did this, this, and this, and I'm suffering because of my sin. In fact, I believe many people are walking away from God today because of this deadly assumption. Many people, as they interpret suffering and they have, whether it be a sickness, a tragedy, a death in the family, if they think this was due to my sin, 
it makes living with a God who would do that so unbearable that they say, I'm just going to walk the other way. Which is why sometimes the most helpful thing you can ever hear is this. You were wrong. And this is wrong. Let's just pick apart this deadly assumption. Sometimes you can suffer in direct corollary to your service to God. Do you know that? That's what Jesus told his disciples. Go out, serve me, and by the way, you're going to be hated because people hated me. You're going to be persecuted as they persecuted me. And it's going to be in direct relation to the good things that you're doing. We have a God who, yes, sometimes likes to turn our life around, but he's not out to punish us. He might discipline us in his love, but the punishment was paid once and for all. When Jesus dies on the cross, the whole wrath of God was poured out in that moment so that the psalmist could say this, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. The reality of this assumption is that you live in a world that is so hopelessly broken that after this sickness, there will be another one. After this pandemic, there will be another one. After this tragedy, there will be another one because the world is broken. And if the only answer is that you did this and you deserve this, why will you ever want to know a God who treats you that way? So something I believe is this. We are filled with so many wrong assumptions. So many wrong assumptions. I mean, it happens with people. <laughs> I was in the Uber the other day, and, um, and I created this story about my Uber driver. Do you ever do that with people? Like, you look at them, and you get to know their name, and then you, like, carry out the story in your mind. Am I the only one? Okay. And, and so I had this whole dialogue built up, because it was like a half an hour drive of who this guy was, Right? until I talked with him. And I was way off. <laughs> way off about his personality, way off about where he came from, his experiences, just completely blew up my first impression. You ever do this with other people? You walk away, and you're like, that person likes me, that was incredible. Yeah, we're like BFF now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But really, they just have an incredible social mask and you find out some other time that that wasn't the case at all? Or I've had the other opposite. I, I've had the situation where I'm like, that person hates me. I don't know why, I don't know what, it, but they hate me. When really they're just maybe intimidated or introverted or quiet. And if it's true we make the wrong assumptions with people, if you can relate to this at all, how often do you think we go astray spiritually? I told you of my own experience. It's raining today. Maybe I did something bad because it's raining. God knows I like the sun. Huh. And if we live in a world where we're never corrected, we're going to be off all the time. Like the disciples who have a couple different options, both wrong. So where this lands for me is the winsome nature of accepting correction. And let me ask you, when's the last time that a godly person spoke into your life, corrected you, and you accepted it? Let me ask you another question. After they tried to correct you, did you thank them or were you mad? Was your knee jerk to be like, 
I'm, I'm so glad you pointed that out. Or was your knee-jerk reaction, but you know what you have? Let me point that out. It's so interesting because the word of God is so helpful in this regard. And I love this proverb. Look at the wisdom found here. Whoever loves discipline, if you like being corrected, if you like being told you're wrong, if you like finding a better way, guess what you love? You love knowledge. You like to learn. You're open-minded. That's great. But if you hate correction because you're always right, and you tell people how it is and, and what God should do and everything else. This is the only time in the Bible that I know it uses this word, which I can't even say out loud in our household, but God says it, so I guess I can say it today. That if you hate correction, you hate being rebuked, you are, say it together, stupid. And let's dig in on this just a little bit because I think that in this society, we have a whole case of stupid. It's, it's maybe a bigger plague right now, how stupid we are. And so if we're going to repent, I think the word is counseling us to repent over all the times we didn't listen to the Lord's rebuke, where we sought to stand above and tell God how he should act and how things should go down. And as we turn to him, like a gentle father, he lovingly corrects us. He's not out to get us but he's out for our good. And he says, you know what? People assume when it comes to me that they have to be perfect and they have to get it all right in order to receive anything good from me. But that would take grace out of the equation. In fact, most people have this deadly assumption that good people to go to heaven. It's so innate out there. It's such the wrong thing. It's, it's, it's the wrong way of getting to God and yet it's so prevalent. And you want the correction the correction found in Jesus Christ is that forgiven people go to heaven. That we all need the cross of Jesus for his blood to wash us clean and to put us on a, a great path and a right relationship with the Lord. And it's the only way people go to heaven, by trusting in the one who's died for their sin. Because we've all been wrong. And we've all gone astray. But justified freely by his grace. How great it is that God lovingly corrects us. His ways are better than what I thought. He's doing something bigger than what I would have guessed. In fact, if you're watching online right now, maybe that's the only reason you tuned in today is to have this assumption corrected. And you thought you had to be good and you had to prove yourself to get to God. You haven't. But Jesus did everything for you so that you could be saved and redeemed. And Jesus goes to his disciples, and he corrects them. And in verse 3, we see it. It says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. And what he's describing is just that there, there isn't a particular sin that led to this disease. Like, it's not drawn to the fact that they cheated on their taxes, and now their son was born blind. Not that. It is not to say that these were perfect people. There, there's no one perfect in the whole of the Bible declares that. But he said, this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's something bigger going on here. Now to talk about that, um, I don't know about you guys, but I've been searching for a movie to watch. 
been at home for so long. You can't go to the movie theater. No one's bringing out new movies because no one's going to the box office. Um, and so as I was looking around, I, I saw this new war movie called The Last Full Measure. I haven't watched it, but I looked at the premise. And uh, The Last Full Measure is about a Vietnam War vet named William Pitsenbarger. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. They, they just called him Pitts. And he's got an incredible story. Uh, so here's a picture of him. Um, it's a story about how he saved over 60 lives in the Vietnam War. That he would go into battles on the helicopter, be let down, and then either bind people up or help them get on the helicopter uh, to, to get off the safety, and, and saved over 60 people's lives. That's incredible. Now, in the process, he actually lost his life in the Vietnam War. But after his death, he was awarded uh, the Medal of Honor. I guess this movie talks about uh, posthumously how he was given the Medal of Honor. But as we look at this man and, and the Vietnam War, is the Vietnam War only about the story of this man? W would you agree that he is a subplot but not the plot? That the plot, the greater narrative, is countries, you know, uh, who couldn't get along, and it's complicated, right, the Vietnam War, um, but, but it's a political dialogue. It's, it's not a, a story of William Pitsenbarger. That's, that's not the point of the story. And I bring this up because as we look at the blind man, if we say the whole of Jesus' life was just to come and open the physical eyesight of this man, we'd be missing something, wouldn't we? I mean, it's good that he did that. In fact, it's a subplot to the plot, but it's a part, not the point. Do you know what I'm saying? Because as the man finds himself, not as the center of the universe, he finds himself in the meta-narrative that God has been saying that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And he finds himself in, in Jesus trying to prove that he's not a sinful man, he's the Son of God. In fact, the key verse, which I thought was confusing when I first read it, because I was looking at it from the blind man's point of view, but the key verse was actually this one, where Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. And his, his subplot is only part of the greater plot of proving that he is the light of the world. There's something bigger going on, and that's the bigger takeaway. That there's a bigger story, and it's about God's glory. And I'm, I'm really going to dwell there for a little bit, so I, I hope you get this one. There is a bigger story. It's about the glory of God, not the glory of man. Consider the resurrection of Lazarus. John 11, fantastic chapter of the Bible. So much you can learn about suffering, how Jesus weeps with you, but you know the biggest story of John 11, the setup to the story? Here, read it with me. It says this, that the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for, say those two words, God's glory. Why does God do miracles? So that you know there is someone who is standing above, someone who is superior. This is about the glory of God. Now, if that's true that he was working that way then, do you think he still does the same thing now? Do you think that if we live as if we were the center of the universe, not understanding he's the light of the world, we're going to miss something about the story? Well, let's just talk about that in the COVID area, in the COVID era. If during this time the story is about our glory or the glory of any man, does this story make any sense? 
when the smartest people don't have answers and the strongest leaders show their weakness and the richest people have something that money can't buy away. If the story is the glory of mankind, does COVID-19 make any sense? I don't think so. But if the bigger story is the glory of God, do you have a lens to see what he might be doing? A lens to see that he's taking away some of the idols that otherwise people were pursuing by making life a little less busy, taking away the hopes that people had their hopes in uh, so that they might find him who is the true hope and peace of the world. The story's different when we take that lens, isn't it? Or consider this, the sickness of a loved one or a child. When a child is sick and we look at the glory of man, is there any glory of that man, that child in it? Have you ever been in a hospital bed of someone who is dying? If the story is the glory of man, is there glory there? But if the bigger story is the glory of God, when a loved one, even a child, is sick, and they feel the power of God's pre presence. And they make confessions of faith. And their family rallies around resurrection power and a home that is not here but there. Could God get glory through that? This is a different lens than how we usually live. To drive it home, I want to give a different illustration at our family, we got a bird feeder in our family house. And I sometimes imagine the point of view of the bird. The one bird might wake up and say, like, yes! This bird seed is all for me. This is my perch. I've named my perch. This is my favorite perch, the perch and the seed. It's all for me. But another bird is waking up saying the same. Yes! This bird feeder is all for me. This is my perch. This is my perch. I love my perch. It's my seed. But little do they know that there are a hundred other birds, at least by our house in the cherry tree, who are thinking the very same thing. And bigger birds who are going to fly to the same perch and name it for theirs. All thinking, yeah, this is for me. And the reality of the bird feeder, it was for my pleasure. <laughs> so I could see the small and the big, the bright and the beautiful, those who would perch and those who would fight. Uh, they didn't start this, I did. <laughs> I don't know they were where they were before. And by the way, I care about birds, but you get the point, right? So you have people who are waking up, yes, it's all for me. And God looks down and says, you're my bird. Brighter, beautiful, perching, fighting. Don't you know, you are just the clay, and, and I, I molded you, and you're there for me, not for you. And if we live in light of that, I have three takeaways. The number one, it affects our expectations of God's power. Can I tell you a dirty secret about the miracles of God? Most people want his miraculous power to benefit themselves. They want to believe in an almighty God so that God can be a genie in the bottle and you just rub and you pray and you do the right that God will then make their life better. And if you believe that, I hope you're seeing you're missing the point of the miraculous power of God. For even in the Old Testament, when people of old did great things, 
when David defeated Goliath, do you know why David was allowed to defeat Goliath? He said to Goliath, I come to you in the name of David? No. I come to you in the name of the Lord, who you have defied. This was for God's renown. Do you know why Moses was able to cross the Red Sea? Because Moses was protecting the promise of God. The promised people who would, from their line, have a promised Savior. Do you know why the disciples were giving amazing powers? In order to prove that the resurrection happened. That they were able to speak with authority. And whenever anyone wanted to bow down to them, they said, no, 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 get up, please, this is not about us. But if you want to believe in the power of God, then believe it. And in our own spiritual lives, we may have to wrestle with God this way because we know God can do whatever he wants. We know he has power to walk on water, to make anything happen. But are we pursuing his glory or ours? That happened when this church was available for sale. I remember praying really hard, like, God, 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 please, 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 please. I really, really think this is going to be a good place to share the gospel from. Please, 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 please. But in my prayers, because it took months, I probably wouldn't have gotten it right away. I do remember praying, empowered by the Spirit, Lord, but if there's another church, who's going to give you greater glory? I accept that. Because this is not about my story, this is about your story. Another expectation, number two. It affects our primary pursuits. Would you agree you cannot pursue two, two same things in a similar fashion? For example, if you're pursuing your kingdom versus God's kingdom and how you handle your money, I believe that's going to lead to different decisions. Maybe you'd agree. If you're pursuing your kingdom versus God's kingdom with how you use your free time, I think that's going to lead to some different pursuits. If that's how you relate to people, your glory or God's glory, I think that's going to lead to different reactions to when they hurt you and different reactions and how you say and how you handle certain things. And Jesus would remind us, if you want to find your life, lose it. And if you lose your life, you'll find it. And then the third takeaway, it affects the quality of our praise. If we see that the bigger story is not about us, then like the disciples who were bowed down to, they quickly said, get up. <laughs> we're nothing. He's everything. And we start living knowing God is using us but accepting none of the praise because really only one is worthy of all praise and all glory. It's how he worked in the Bible. When you look at the characters that God used, whether it be David or Abraham or Moses, none of them can stand on a pedestal. You know what David did with Uriah and killed him? Moses was a murderer on the run. Abraham didn't know how to lead his own family. None of them can stand on that pedestal. In fact, I think also of how that still works today. Um, every now and then you have people who God is using in a big way and then no longer. Um, and, and sometimes they fall. And remember, people are just sinful people. But, but I wonder if sometimes that is part of God's plan so that there's only one who gets the glory. And it has to be Jesus. So as we live, we live with a pursued understanding this is for the glory of God. You know, I had to get to rub shoulders with a bunch of pastors who I like and 
when I go to conferences, we read papers, and, and at the end of a paper, there's usually these three letters, SDG. And they're Latin words, soli deo gloria, which means to God alone be the glory. That they know, even though they've put in a ton of time and a ton of work to write a paper, they exist simply for the glory of God. Because the reality is that the center of the universe is never me. But it is the light of the world. And when people see him, he can rescue them from spiritual darkness, open their eyes to the wonders of his love, and give them such a hope and a peace that they have never experienced. I hope you've seen his glory today. Now let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have opened my eyes to see the Savior. Continue to open them as you guide me through your word. Rebuke and correct any of my wrong attitudes and lead me in a way that will be pleasing to you. Lord, I thank you for my life and the ability to find my story as a subplot to your own. Let my life speak and be lived for your glory as you empower me. Amen.